Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I have a great joy to meet with an old friend and a colleague from the University of Chicago Division School, uh, Sean Hannon. Uh, we studied together uh, here in Chicago uh, in philosophy and theology. We studied a lot of Augustine. Uh, Sean is now a professor at McEwen University in Edmonton in uh, Alberta, Canada, and uh, we will be talking about his book called uh, uh, Reading Augustine on Time, Change, History, and Conversion. This book is based on his dissertation, which he uh, wrote uh, here at Chicago, and he is one of the uh, blessed and privileged uh, who uh, actually published the fruits of his labor. Uh, I'm still remiss on that. Um, and uh, so we'll be talking about his book. And uh, my first question is uh, why he chose this project? How did he come to uh, write a dissertation on uh, Augustine? I mean, it's on many more things, but Augustine is the main figure. What were the questions that drove you to this? Please. Well, thank you for the question, Adrian, and thank you as well for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. I often think back fondly on our days in Chicago and all the things we learned from uh, Professor Wilhelmine Otten and many of our other great uh, professors at Chicago. Uh, the question of how I came to write a dissertation on temporality in Augustine is an interesting one. Uh, in some ways, it goes back to my undergraduate days at the University of Alberta here in Edmonton, uh, where I was in the history program. But uh, the history program at that time at the University of Alberta was quite uh, adept at introducing students to more historiographical and uh almost philosophy of history related questions. So we read a lot of Hayden White, we read Paul Ricoeur, Time and Narrative, uh, books like that. And I remember reading volume one of Time and Narrative for a sort of historiography class. And uh, as I'm sure you know, Ricoeur begins with uh, Aristotle and Augustine uh, on time and how time can be structured narratively uh, or not. And then he kind of takes his leave from that and goes off into his own phenomenologically fueled uh, reflections. Uh, but I remember reading that book at the time and not knowing anything about Augustine. Uh, I think I was vaguely interested in medieval history. I was thinking about taking some Latin and Greek classes, but you know, I didn't really have any specific interests beyond that. Uh, but I remember reading Ricoeur on Augustine on time and thinking, well, isn't this interesting? Uh, that this North African bishop from a millennium and a half ago uh, is, you know, speculating uh, in all these interesting ways about the nature of time, uh, about the reality or unreality of the present moment, uh, about how memory and uh, anticipation of the future kind of structure human consciousness, that sort of thing. And, uh, and then I just decided to go down the rabbit hole and start reading Augustine on time and then reading more about Augustine more broadly, more Augustinian primary sources, and it just kind of snowballed from there. I ended up going down to Chicago for my master's, uh, which was supervised by uh, Professor Otten, and I wrote uh, a master's thesis on uh, De Trinitate. And then uh, I decided to really stick with the philosophy of time angle uh, once I got into the PhD program, and I just sort of kept deepening and deepening my 
appreciation of Augustine on that question and then sort of contextualizing what he was doing uh, with his approach to time and eternity relative both to ancient thinkers like Plotinus uh, and then also some modern thinkers uh, like Husserl and other phenomenologists uh, like Ricoeur himself too. Um, and so it all kind of led up to that moment. So in a weird way, I was kind of banging the same drum all the way from, you know, senior year of my undergraduate degree up until the end of the, uh, the PhD. Fascinating how these questions stay with us, right? And uh, we start with an inkling and then we stick to it and uh, uh, somehow we pursue that. Uh, and uh, you probably, are you, are you doing anything now that is somewhat related to this initial inkling in terms of your studies? Right now, uh, in a sense, I think I've allowed myself since getting the um, uh, the book published uh, to explore other questions as well. Uh, I hope to come back and, and write a bit more, certainly on Augustine, uh, maybe on the philosophy of time as well. Uh, my own research has moved more in the direction of medieval mysticism and its modern reception. So I've been doing some work with Meister Eckhart especially a little bit of Johann Tauler, a little bit of Catherine of Siena. And then I've been working with my co-author, uh, Dr. W. Ezekiel Goggin, uh, who's an expert on Hegel and German idealism and German romanticism. Uh, and I think there could be sort of a connection there with regard to time, because Eckhart also is always talking about the now uh, and has some interesting to th things to say about the intersection of time and eternity. I think it's quite different from what Augustine's up to. I mean, they're such different thinkers. They're operating in such different intellectual and vernacular contexts um, that I don't want to reduce what they're saying to the same sort of thing. Um, but I, yeah, I think I could sort of see a sequel project on temporality and specifically the question of the reality or unreality of the present moment uh, in the medievals as well. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, we start with the end a little bit. Uh, what uh, you want to do uh, in, for your future research? But um, so, why did you choose Augustine as your quote-unquote proxy in this conversation, or what attracted you in his view or perspective? Uh, and what did he add to the conversation? And before answering maybe you you can elaborate a little bit what the conversation is all about for you and how you think augustine and your position through him contributes to that conversation right well again if, if we go back to the beginning it had more to do with thinking about how humans narrate the past. I guess that's how I started, right? These historiographical questions. And then from that, I was led to the question of how we sort of structure time uh, as a story sometimes. And then I started to think, well, is it that time is sort of structured in this narrative linear fashion? Or is it that we like to tell sort of nice, neat, linear narrative stories? And then we sort of come up with a theory of time that matches um, our proclivity for, for that kind of storytelling. Uh, I think the way that Ricoeur discusses it is that um, it's quite possible that time itself, if we can use that locution, isn't really structured <laughs> like a linear story, but humans think that way. And so maybe it's okay, right, that we talk about time as if it followed this sort of neat linear structure um, that that we tend to think with. Ricoeur talks about that as the humanization of time, right? The narrativization of time is the humanization of time. It may or may not correspond to some sort of objective physical structure of time out there in the universe, uh, but that doesn't really matter because as humans, uh, it's not only okay, but maybe even ethically incumbent upon us uh, to structure time like a story so that we can tell stories to each other and kind of ethically engage via those stories. Uh, what I found interesting about Augustine is he seems to, in some ways, push back against that. Uh, and I think Ricoeur knows this, and that's one of the reasons he starts with 
with Augustine and he kind of juxtaposes Augustine with Aristotle um, and the sort of poetic structuring of, of time uh, into a narrative. So what we find in Augustine is that on one hand, uh, a lot of our ideas about the present being the most real phase of time or something like that uh, turns out to not really hold up to scrutiny. We can't really figure out when the present moment is supposed to be happening. Uh, we don't really find ourselves isolated on some sort of island of present experience where we can reach out to the future and to the past. Instead, we're always caught up in this river of time. And so we need to come up with some sort of way of holding ourselves together in time as a sort of rear guard measure, right? And so he comes up with this idea of the threefold present, uh, where we have memory, we have awaiting or expectation with regard to the future. And then we have this thing called contuitus, which is sometimes translated as attention or even vision. I would prefer to translate it as awareness, because I think awareness is a more flexible word uh, semantically that allows you to bring in the sense of a connectedness to the past and the future, right? You're sort of aware, not just of some sort of isolated now, but of this kind of uneven uh, sort of wavelength uh, that's going up and down, connecting us uh, uh, to the past and the future as well. So on one hand, I was attracted to Augustine's sort of skepticism of the present, which I connected to, again, some sort of phenomenological accounts of the present moment, as in Husserl, Ricoeur, and uh, and some of his uh the thinkers that came after that. In the long run, I tried to bring things back to history, which I think is a little more easier to sink our teeth into, maybe, than the abstract philosophy of, of time and the critique of the present moment. And what we find in Augustine is that uh, in the phase of history, at least, in which we live, which he often refers to as the interim cyclum or just the cyclum, the, the age in between, namely in between uh, the Christ event which is over, <laughs> and the eschaton, which hasn't happened yet. Uh, Augustine, in texts like The City of God, talks about how we actually struggle uh, to make sense of history as it happens all around us. Uh, we maybe can't turn it into a nice, neat story or narrative, uh, especially as we live through it. We might be able to do that about things that happened in the distant past, especially things that happened um, and that were then retroactively framed via scripture. Right. So he's pretty he's okay saying that like Moses coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments is a turning point in human history. He's okay with that. Uh, but he's very skeptical of any claims that we would have now to saying, well, this is a turning point or that's a turning point. Or to connect it, as I do in the book, to 21st century um sort of pop intellectuals like Steven Pinker. Uh Augustine, I think would be very skeptical of these ideas that, you know, things are getting better over time. At the same time, I think you'd be skeptical of, of saying things are getting worse over time. When you read Augustine on the Cyclum or on the Tempora Christiana, you actually get the sense that we don't know whether things are getting better or worse. It's unclear. It's unclear whether humans have the historical consciousness needed uh, to actually arrive at those judgments. Uh, and so, again, just like there was a skepticism regarding the present moment, there's a kind of skepticism, or maybe we should just say intellectual humility regarding the present age of history. You know, can we diagnose that? Can we isolate that and sort of say it's good or it's bad or it's going up or it's going down? So just to sum up all of that, I think Augustine is entering into two interrelated conversations that are still relevant to us. One is, what is the status of the present moment? Should we try to cultivate a special relationship with that moment, like you might see in the mindfulness movement, another kind of pop intellectual or pop psychological fad of today? Um, or should we turn against that? And then secondly, there's this question of history and being able to diagnose the historical moment in which you live, uh, which everyone feels the temptation to do. Uh, but I think Augustine is uniquely positioned, in part just given the era that he himself lived in, uh, but also the way he thought about his own era, uh, to, to warn us against, right? Warn us against rushing to judgment about whatever we take our own current historical moment to be. Um, yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, uh, before we go, uh, I'd like to spend some time and discuss these conversations that you open up through Augustine. And, uh, I think those are very interesting, the conversation with the mindfulness movement and then the 
conversation with uh, inter like pop intellectuals, as you call them, like Pinker. But let's let's spend a few more minutes in, in you know fleshing out uh, a ghastly drone position, uh, right? Um, uh, which which I think is uh, his own anthropological position and view. How does he envisage, in a way, coping or enduring with this, uh, or, or enduring this predicament, right? Uh, um, yeah. What can we, and, and there are a few terms he uses, right? Distensio, intensio. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I thought the passage which starts on page 16. Uh, and goes to page 17 would be really pertinent to explaining some of these terms that Augustine is using. So, Sean, would you mind reading that? Uh, with starting with a citation from Confessions 11, page 16, and then maybe this, we can discuss that so that we grasp Augustine's way to approach this. I'd be happy to. So I'll begin with a quotation from Confessions 11, uh, and then uh, it will f what will follow after that is uh, my own analysis, and then there will be uh, a completion of that quotation from Confessions 11, and then my own analysis again. So beginning with Augustine, quote, Look at how my life is a stretching apart, distensio. Your right hand picked me up and brought me to my Lord, the human mediator. He mediates between you, who are one, and us, who are many. We are in many things, and we pass through many things, and you brought me to him, so that I might take hold of him by whom I was already held, so that I might be gathered up from my aged days and chase after one thing, having forgotten all that has passed away, so that I might chase not after those things that are going to be and pass away, but after those things that are before. Ante. Augustine's reference here is to Philippians. In order to overcome the strain of time's distensio, Augustine needs something more than the threefold mechanism outlined above. He needs salvation. His reading of Paul told him this could only come from Christ, the mediator between time and timelessness. In Paul's eschatological framework, Augustine glimpsed the possibility of a messianic resolution to the problem of temporality. His reflections on measurement, meanwhile, had merely raised deeper questions which were likely to stay unresolved until the end of time. And yet, there remains a way out. Continuing the above passage, Augustine, at Confessions 11, 29-39, says he was brought to an awareness of the eternal God, quote, so that I might be stretched out, not stretched apart, so that I might chase after that victory palm of the calling from above, not distractedly, but intently. If I could win this palm, I would hear a voice of praise and contemplate your delight, which neither arrives nor passes away. Now, of course, my ears are full of groans. You are my relief, Lord. You are eternal, my Father. But I am ripped apart in times. I have no idea what their order is. My thoughts and the innermost guts of my soul will be torn to shreds by unstable differences until I flow into you, purified and melted down by the fire of your love. Augustine's passage is riddled with tensile terminology, although the forms of tension noted by Augustine are not the same as Graham Harmon's fourfold division. And that's a reference to a philosopher I discussed earlier in chapter one. Augustine's goal is to be stretched out, extentus, without getting stretched apart, distentus. He sees a way out of the torment of distensio in Paul's message of salvational extensio, though the timing of this escape remains in question. A conversion of distensio into extensio seems improbable here and now. Paul's rhetoric of running a race governs this passage, introducing a third tension, intensio which can be rendered as focus, intent, or, in keeping with the image of the contest, the extension of an athlete's limbs as they desperately attempt to cross the finish line. Intensio must be pursued against distensio, though this does not mean the pursuit has reached its target. 
it means the opposite. The human race is still being run. Augustine's years remain full of groans as he is ripped apart in the varying time spans of his unstable experience, ignorant of their proper order. In his guts, Augustine will be torn to shreds by time until some final, unimaginable melting down into God's love. Only in this eschatological dissolution will Augustine be given the ability to convert distensio into extensio. Beautiful. Um, do you want to exegete it a little bit and uh, uh, explain how this fits in the overall argument? Because I think it captures some of the core of the argument. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. So uh, when I discuss distensio in Augustine, that refers to Augustine's uh, discussion of time. Some would call it a definition. Some would say it's not a definition, but he certainly discusses time in terms of distensio animi, which can be translated in many different ways and can be interpreted in diametrically opposed ways. So I like to translate it as the, the stretching apart of the soul, but I take it as sort of a an objective genitive, by which I mean uh, it's time itself is essentially a force that stretches the soul apart, right? Uh, now, other readers of Augustine, whom I respect and you know whose thought I've given a lot of time to considering, although I, I disagree in many ways, would say that it should be read as a subjective genitive, in which case time is somehow constituted by the soul's expansive activity, right? As if we were starting out in an island at the present moment and then extending into the future by way of anticipation and extending into the past by way of remembering. I don't think that's correct. Uh, it took, you know, I, this was one of the things I was banging my head against the wall over for many, many years was what does Augustine mean by distensio animi? Um, must we read that in a subjectivist, almost idealizing manner, which would seem to reduce time to the function of the human psyche? Uh, ultimately, I decided against that. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Augustine's clear, I think, within Confessions 11 and 12, but also in other texts like uh, De Genesi Ad Literam, he's pretty clear that time starts from ex nihilo cre creation. Um, it, he doesn't make it a function of the human mind. He's not a subjectivist about time. He's not an idealist about time. That's why the first chapter of the book, I try to lean into the idea that Augustine is, for lack of a better word, a realist uh, about time and treats it as something like a natural force that affects us, right? That stretches our souls uh, apart. Now, um, one potential counter argument to that would be, well, doesn't Augustine talk about the threefold present as well in Confessions 11? He says there's a present of things past, a present of things present, and a present of things future. And that's true. But I think if we read that passage contextually, you'll find as well that um, what he's actually talking about there is a structure of temporal experience or really a, a structure within the soul itself um, that copes with the force of time that stretches us apart. So in other words, because we are stretched apart by this force of time and we don't have a nice safe little island that we can call the present moment or the now that we can live in and kind of reach out to colonize the future and the past from, uh, we need to have a, a kind of present experience that deals with the past and the future as well as the present, right? So the threefold present describes a kind of, again, structure of temporal consciousness that humans have in order to react to time itself, which is a real thing, a natural force. Uh, what does it do to us? It stretches us apart in a kind of destructive, distracting way, right? Where we feel like we can't gather ourselves up. We can't think of ourselves as sort of isolated, um, free agents operating in the moment, able to kind of plan our future out and then take a series of steps in order to actualize that plan, right? We find ourselves sort of more thrown into the river of time. Okay, so that's that's the basic background to what I'm talking about in, in this passage. Um, now, within what I read specifically, I talk about three tensio words, right? Distensio, which I just unpacked. Extensio, which Augustine doesn't use that much, but he has to use it here or he wants to use it here because it's in his Latin version of, uh, of Philippians, right? Where Paul talks about sort of being stretched out in a more positive way. Like again, the athlete is trying to win the race. 
Uh, and then intensio, which has that kind of teleological element or that sort of goal-oriented element as well. Um, and so one of the questions I think in Augustine is, can you convert distensio into extensio in the moment, like in this now moment that we think we're living in, or even just within this current stream of time that we're now living through? Or is extensio at the end of the day, an eschatological category, um, that in some sense there will be a redeemed version of being stretched, but it won't be being stretched apart because you won't feel like you're being torn apart, right? Where as if the future was grabbing one of your arms and the past was grabbing your other arm and you were just kind of ripped apart. Um, but maybe there will be some sort of redemptive sense of being stretched, um, that will be attained at the end of time or something like that, right? But not now. The important thing is not not in the time that we're living through. And my argument is that it is ultimately for Augustine eschatological. Um, others, again, would disagree, and they would say, well, maybe you can change your relationship to time, right, and kind of convert it now when you're still living and have this fundamentally different relationship to time. And maybe that's true. But I don't think it is, and I don't think it's what Augustine's talking about. I think he's saying that we're stuck with distensio, this kind of violent, pass, excuse me, passive uh, sense of being stretched apart. But perhaps, if we read Philippians 3 uh, eschatologically, uh, there will be a kind of redeemed stretching or redeemed uh, experience of duration that could be possible uh, after the eschaton. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's the difference between ex extensio and intensio? Uh, yeah, uh, for for you or for Augustine, or as you read Augustine. Right. Yeah. No. So I think Augustine does use int intensio a lot more frequently across his corpus, um, as far as I know, anyways, uh, than he uses extensio. Uh, at least in this in this sense of extensio, right? Like when he uses extensio, I think he has in mind the Pauline eschatology. Intensio he'll use in different ways, right? It basically can mean a kind of directedness. Um, it's not so different from phenomenological discussions of intentionality, right? Sort of what you're pointing at. Um, but I suppose what I would say is if extensio is an eschatological category, right? It names the redeemed experience of a kind of duration that may be enjoyed by those who find themselves in the uh, Kylum Kylorum, the, the heaven of heavens, uh, <clears throat> where in some sense you will feel a kind of duration occurring perhaps, but it won't be the violent duration of time that stretches you apart. Right? That's kind of what I'm going for there. Intensio isn't necessarily an eschatological term at all. Right, It just names your the directedness basically of your will, of your voluntas, uh, in time. Um, but that intensio itself kind of is uh, ever, ever being frustrated by the forces of distensio that distract it, right? So you're trying to focus, or your will is trying to focus or something like that. Or maybe you have more than one will, which is kind of what he says in Confessions 8, you have different wills all kind of active at the same time. Uh, and you're trying to draw those together into one focus, one intensio that's pointed at just one goal, or one telos. Uh, but it never really works out that way because distensio comes in and pulls your focus towards the past or towards the future, right? And just frustrates your attempt to have an intensio from within. So to sum all that up, intensio I read as an imminent term. Um, it's something that we m may have uh, as we live through time, although we don't have it very successfully because our attempts to focus always succumb to a kind of distraction. Extensio is a more is a rarer term. It's more rarefied, I guess, is what I would want to say. Term that deals more with an eschatological possibility. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and as I read this, it's uh, which is incredibly rich. It brings so many resources, and it's a rich and eclectic, fascinating to read. I think uh, uh, the, the dialogue established and. Um, between so many eclectic and diverse sources. Now, as I read this, it seems you are somehow privileging the eschatological. And I, I agree with you with 
you read, let's say, of the sacrum, right, of, of uh, um, the situation in which we find ourselves now, right? But on the other hand, I felt myself pushing back and said, well, isn't it a little bit too uh, somehow, I don't know, for difficulties? Well, maybe there is a way in which this intensio can occur or can be achieved in a more consistent way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially for Augustine, right, who is a Christian, right? And then the question is whether there is a difference between someone who, let's say, practices Christianity or some type of, uh, right, let's say, Christianity and someone who doesn't. Does that make any difference for him or for your reading of him? So, yeah, just to make sure I'm following you, you're asking sort of, does being Christian or converting or even being baptized, I think these are all on the table, uh, doesn't that change the Christian's ability to achieve focus or you know their intensio shouldn't it work function a little bit better yeah let's uh, let's, let's try that like question that. yeah my question is that that be a specific version of the question the more general question is what are the chances of conversion right according to augustine and i guess conversion for him is how the conversion of distensio into intensio Right. It seems you are your reading is rather always leaning into distensio, right? You're you're always prone to emphasize distensio and not very hopeful, let's say, about distensio. Anyway, there would be two ways to pose the question. No, I think I see what you mean. Yeah, and I so I I kind of try to address this in uh the chapter where I discuss Confessions 8 and Augustine's uh, conversion moment in the garden. Uh, so that would be, I think, yeah, chapter 5. And uh, yeah, I, I do, you know, that's why conversion is in the title of the book, because Augustine's conversion in that garden in Milan is is sort of the, the major turning point in his own life. And so since the book is talking about questions of turning points and whether they're identifiable and what is it like to live through a, a now moment that you take to be decisive, you know, and to decisively alter your life. I think that's the sort of thing we're circling around in our conversation. And to preserve right now. it somehow, right? Yeah. Um, no, I think it's a it's a great question. Um, so yeah, when it comes to Confessions Eight, uh, it's very interesting to me. So I, I try to in in that chapter discuss uh, the possibility of volis excuse me volitional distensio. So yes, I'm still I'm still focused on distensio there, but there's an idea there that because you might have multiple wills uh, directing themselves to different goals at the same time, not only are you stretched apart by past and future within time, but you're also kind of stretched apart by your own different wills going off in different directions, and so conversion uh, in in book eight of the confessions might then mean not a kind of turning around. Right, which sometimes we might think of that with conversion that you're facing the wrong direction and then you turn around and that's your conversion, but it's almost like all of your different wills are now being turned in the same direction and you're granted something like intensio, right? Focus, um, directedness of all of your different volitional uh, energies uh, in the same direction. And I think the closest we come to an account of that in Augustine's Corpus is his Book Eight of the Confessions and the account of his own conversion, right? And so then the question becomes, how triumphant is that account? And I think it's a little triumphant, certainly within Confessions 8 itself, right? There does seem to be a kind of snap of the fingers moment where he's experiencing extreme anxiety and almost going through convulsions over his anxiety and his inability to, to decide, basically, right? He says he's cognitively certain of what he needs to do and yet volitionally 
that you know doesn't matter in some sense. And so Grace has to, I would say, Grace has to kind of come in and smash down that last wall and just basically force all of his vo- his wills to kind of point in the same direction. Now that's when that's also the part in the book where I bring in the gift of perseverance and I try to figure out what Augustine's talking about with with perseverance. Uh, and for Augustine, perseverance is, in my view, kind of a it's a temporal qualification of this triumphalism around conversion or the moment of conversion. And this obviously brings in the later Augustine, the anti-Pelagian works and, you know, the mess, <laughs> all of the mess that comes along with that. Um, but what he says in the gift of perseverance is essentially that even if it feels like you have converted, even if it feels like you've gone through this turning point where now all of your scattered wills are all turned in the same direction and you feel like your intensio maybe has been restored or something like that or given to you for the first time or made effective for the first time, uh, you actually don't really know that. And I think he becomes increasingly skeptical about that too, right? Skeptical about the present moment, skeptical about our ability to interpret our own historical age. I think also we become skeptical about our own status as having been converted, right? Um, and that makes the triumphalism harder to preserve. So in in the uh, the text known as the gift of perseverance, he talks about examples of, of backsliding, right? People who converted, people who got baptized, people who lived these really holy lives, apparently. And then at the very last minute, they don't, right? At the very last minute, they, they, they change. Um, and for Augustine, you know, while we may never know from our own human perspectives who will be a member of the elect and who will be a member of the reprobate, uh, he wants to point out the fact that people who seem like they're on the right path right now, who seem like they've been converted, who seem like their intensio is, you know, always focused in the right direction, uh, that, that might not be stable in the end, right? Even that cannot be necessarily trusted. Even that could be frustrated by distensio, by the force of time coming in and basically upsetting those people, right? So even the, you know, the monk living in the desert being celibate or something uh, might succumb to temptation, you know, in old age, right before he dies. And for Augustine, that's, that's it, right? Uh, that's as bad as if you, uh, as if you had been living a whole life of, uh, of profligacy in, in a sense, right? So it's all about perseverance. And the weird thing about perseverance is you won't know who's been given the gift of perseverance until they're dead. And really, even when they're dead, you won't know who's been given the gift of perseverance until the eschaton when the sheep and the goats are sorted apart and it becomes clear. So I think even with conversion, even with the triumphalism that you do find in Book 8 of the Confessions, um, Augustine himself will, later in his life even, tend towards that focus on distensio, distraction, anxiety, instability, the threat of everything being overturned. It's not very comforting, to be honest, but uh, Augustine isn't always that comforting. Even in his sermons, you know, where you think he might be at his most rhetorically inclined to say, oh, don't worry, it'll all be all right. Uh, he often doesn't do that, right? He wants, he almost wants to provoke a kind of healthy anxiety, um, in my view. Now, I'm not sure that's what everyone of us would like him to have done or what we would prefer in our own 21st century context, but I do think that that's that Augustine's texts themselves kind of lean in the direction of anxiety over distensio. Yeah, I might read the passage, um, page 121, which I found very suggestive along those lines. As it turns out, all three of Augustine's premier polemical targets played a role in sharpening his appreciation of our struggles in time. Mark McKee and Cosmology provided the backdrop for his cosmological explanation of time's beginning and end. Pelagius' fanaticism of free choice, meanwhile, flummoxed the age with Augustine so much that he perhaps wrote more treatises than necessary against the untrammeled sovereignty of the instant of decision. The Donatist's controversy led Augustine to reconsider the ultimate value of whatever entices us in time, even in the arenas of politics and ecclesiology. The goal of social mastery evaporates in view of eternity. Um, and I, I, th- this, let's say, direction of your argument is, is pretty clear in the book. Uh, 
And my and, and I agree with, with most of it. Let's but uh, and and I applaud and we'll get now to the point where we talk about some of your, some of your polemics against let's say easygoing uh, let's say uh, narratives of pro- progressivism or progress in history. Nevertheless, I'm, I'm left a little bit. Uh, maybe I'm expecting more. Well, maybe there is some hope. Maybe there is a way to uh, to um, find some type of foundation, right? And that's the question: How can you take stock of something without refining, without? Um, falling into a false idealism or uh, a positivism, right? Do you have to have this either or of, uh, you know, scatological verging on apocalypticism, <laughs> or you have this, well, pinker, pinkerite, well, it's all going well, and, right? And, and my question comes from someone who, you know, take seriously uh, people like Maximal Confessor, right, who, or other narratives of, uh, let's say, cosmic Christianity, where you have notions of incarnation mediation, right, where, uh, where we should not construct utopias. Nevertheless, we're allowed to to take stock, well, we're going somewhere, right? Or, or my life itself might be frazzled and might be, uh, you know, I might be torn apart by so many things, but there is a common thread. There is a, there is a chance of intensity, if I may say. Right? I'm, although that might be not continuous, I still have a chance to bring myself together out of this tension. Anyway, please, sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's a good line of questioning. I, I think that the closest I come to, to trying to tackle those sorts of questions is in the uh, sixth chapter, uh, where I sort of talk about, is there a possibility of, of activism or, you know, really just any kind of militating for... For change uh, in light of Augustine, because I do think that I think that's one of the bigger challenges uh, to Augustine's position is does it lead to a kind of quietism, right? Where it's like, well, okay, we don't really know where we stand individually. We don't know where society stands as a whole, and we're waiting for the end of the world. <laughs> you know, like is that the end of the conversation? And it, for better or for worse, I do think for Augustine. Maybe that is the end of the conversation, but I do realize that we should at least explore the possibility of, you know, continuing to get militate for change uh, within an Augustinian framework. We should at least try to figure out if that's it's if that's possible, and if so, how we would have to frame that, what kind of rhetorical strategies we might want to adopt, and so on. And so, uh, as has probably probably become clear uh, through my invocation of, you know, Steven Pinker and mindfulness and so on. One of the things about the Reading Augustine series, uh, which is uh, overseen by uh, Miles Hollingworth, so I should give Miles a shout out, uh, is that you want to put Augustine into conversation uh, with contemporary voices and debates, right? So when I wrote my dissertation, it was a little more dry, you know, scholastic. What does Augustine mean by distensio? What does he mean by the threefold present? And that was basically it. With this book, uh, what I tried to do was was put some of those Augustinian positions into conversation, you know, a, a little playfully, a little, uh, a little, uh, I don't know, uh, provocatively, uh, yeah, crazily, exactly, <laughs> creatively, uh, with with thinkers like that. And so, in the sixth chapter, I, I bring in Agamben on the Kairos a little bit, but that's still pretty ivory tower. Uh, but I also bring in. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, right? And this tension that you find if you were to read, say, the letter from Birmingham jail alongside 
the bullet or the ballot or the ballot or the bullet. I always forget the order of that. Uh, but Malcolm X's piece, uh, where you get Malcolm's rhetoric of the time is now, right? Which is a kind of political kairos, right? Like a not just a now moment, but a now moment that is politically decisive. It's uh, the season of opportunity, essentially, right? Like strike while the iron is hot, that sort of thing. Uh, Dr. King, interestingly, in the letter from Birmingham Jail, has a whole little excursus on time where he talks about time being neutral, which always stood out to me, right? Um, Now, the reason he's doing that is because he talks about the proverbial white moderate saying, uh, just wait a little bit longer, wait a a little bit longer, right? Quietism, essentially, you know, it's not the right time. We don't know when the right time will be. Don't cause a ruckus, essentially. Uh, But Dr. King flips that on its head. And instead of taking Malcolm's approach, which would be to say, no, 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 the time is now, not tomorrow, it's now. Dr. King says, no, time is neutral, right? It's kind of like the cyclum. It's kind of like that empty, homogenous sense of time that sometimes Augustine plays around with and that Agamben critiques, by the way, but that's a separate issue. Um, And so I think they're, in a weird way, Augustine and Dr. King would agree that the neutrality of time, the kind of vacancy, the emptiness of time, both on the level of the individual and on the level of historical society, could be seen as an opportunity because it doesn't necessarily mean that nothing can change, right? It doesn't mean that everything is, has to stay the same. It just kind of means that change is always happening in a kind of low hum. <laughs> and so things can be altered and maybe we could lean this way or that to try to help that process along. Um, but we don't have to wait for a Kairos, right? That's the benefit. We don't have to wait for this revolutionary moment where everything falls into place. Um, is that a little quietistic still? Does that kind of maybe not speak to a sort of radical hope where, again, like the utopia is just around the corner? Uh, yes. Yeah. I think, you know, Dr. King and, and Augustine are both not radical revolutionary utopians in that way. But I think there's a little bit of space there uh, for thinking at one and the same time, the idea that time is a sort of neutral, you know, empty, homogenous continuum uh, that keeps clicking along. And yet at the same time, the fact of its very neutrality means that change could happen in any given moment, right? And we don't have to wait for these these magical revolutionary moments. So that's where I see hope in Augustine. Um, I I totally concede the point that there are other Christian thinkers, both in late antiquity or the Middle Ages, that would give us a more radical rhetoric of hope um, that would be useful in many ways. Uh, but I don't think it's there in Augustine. And if I could just toss in one more observation related to that, I think part of it has to do with his kind of, uh, what's the word, his uh, his sense of his sense of the fact that there was a sort of Theodosian moment, right? Where, 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 you know, maybe during the reign of Theodosius, possibly there could have been some sort of coming together of Christianity and empire that would redeem empire itself. And that would lead to a kind of tempora Christiana, a Christian age that would be meaningfully different than the, the mess of history that came before. Um, but by the time we get to the city of God, by the time we get to, you know, Alaric's offsite at Sack of Rome in, uh, in 410 CE, that's just over for Augustine. Right. And so he has to think through this new, this new sense of the, the cyclum, uh, that doesn't have that kind of hope in it, right? It's a post-triumphalist account of history. And I think the perseverance stuff that I was talking about before is a post-triumphalist account of sort of the individual's lifetime, right? In both cases, you it's deflationary. In both cases, it's deflationary. Um, there's still room for hope, but maybe not as much hope as, as in some other uh, authors. Yeah. Uh, so, so there is hope. Uh, so you you think he's uh, embracing that virtue? Uh, as I was reading it, I, I also was for for another thing. I was reading Patrick Denise Why Liberalism Failed, and I noticed that there is this strain of um, oops, uh, talks that the books that um, emphasize well. Uh, the, the uh, let's say the more pessimistic reading of our situation. Uh, Patrick Denin, John Gray, Snow Dogs, right? Uh, and then you have Tinker. 
and uh, the two very different regions of our current situation and uh, yeah. where we are now. Question and, and you're left asking, okay, what is it now? Is it that fraud or is it enlightened now? How do you mediate between these? Right, that's where, and along those lines is also the personal question, what keeps you going day to day in the middle of distancia? How do you, moment to moment, day to day, keep it together, right? Uh, in, um, so, can you offer some thoughts along those lines? Yeah, no, yeah, I can try. <laughs> I can try. Yeah, no, but I think, you know, these different uh, 21st century perspectives that you were just referring to, I mean, it, to me, it kind of boils down to the same old idea of, you know, are things getting better or are things getting worse? Some people say they're getting better. Some people say they're getting worse. And we can just fight about that forever. And with Augustine, just like with Dr. King, we get a third option, which is time is neutral or like things aren't getting better or worse. They, they, things are just sort of happening and, uh, and any sort of like, you know, big progress or regression narrative, you know, uh, probably is assuming too much, at least about the historical awareness that humans can have of their own, of their own period. So there's that now when it comes to, you know, is there any way of holding ourselves together or any hope or something like that? Yeah. I think there, there, there is for Augustine, but, at the same time, I don't think he wants to overestimate it. So here I'm thinking of two connections. One is this passage, which I quote somewhere in the book, uh, from his homilies on First John, where he talks about the cross as being like a tree on the side of the river, and the river is time. And we're floating down the river, and we're torn apart by distensio and all that stuff. Uh, but the, you know, the cross is there. Like the tree is there. Eternity is there. Timelessness is there. God is, is timeless. That's something else I talk about a lot in the book is that eternity for Augustine doesn't mean a really long time or some sort of everlasting duration. It's it's pure timelessness. And I think one of the things he really agrees with, with Plotinus on is this strict sense of timelessness and ascribing that to the divine. So in some sense, you can you can grab on to the, the tree. You can grab on to the timeless within time. doesn't necessarily lift you out of time, right? You're still going to be living through it. But you can touch that tree, right? You can hold on to the cross because the cross, if there was ever a moment, if there was ever a Kairos uh, where eternity broke into time, it was the Christ event culminating it at, Calv at, uh, at Calvary or, or Golgotha, you know? Uh, so there's that. You can hold on to the tree. Again, it's not going to make your life any better. I don't know that it'll make your intensio more focused. I don't think it'll convert your distensio into extensio, but it's something. Right? It's something you can grasp for the timeless. Um, and then the other thing would just be that, yeah, I think it's ultimately still uh, an eschatological hope for Augustine. And here I'm thinking of discussions I've had with other folks uh, about, you know, other issues in Augustine, for example, the, you know, the Beata Vita, the blessed life, which is his Latin rendering of Eudaimonia. Um, you know, what does that mean? Blessedness, happiness, human flourishing, the blessed life, whatever. Uh, when is that achieved? Can a version of it be achieved now, even if that version is not as good as whatever will be experienced on the other side of the eschaton? I think, and so there's one phrase that Augustine sometimes use, uh, uses, which is beatus in spe, right? Happy in hope. And I've had discussions with folks, as I said before about this, and the question often becomes, well, does that mean we're happy now? Because we hope... <laughs> that after the eschaton will be, you know, in the good place rather than the bad place? Or does it mean that we're not really happy right now, but we have hope of being happy? And in a sense, that's that's kind of like being happy, uh, but you're happy in hope. But it doesn't mean you wake up every day and you ha and you know you're whistling as you go into the coal mine or something like that, right? You're not it's not exactly making a promise about human flourishing today or in the now. And uh out of those two options, I think I side more with the latter. I think when Augustine uses phrases like Beatus in Spe, he means, yeah, you're not, your life right now may or may not 
improve or, or decline in quality on any given day. And you really shouldn't measure your relationship to Christ or to the timeless God through that at all. Um, instead, when you say that you're happy in hope, it really is an eschatological statement because the only Beata Vita that counts is the one that can't be lost. And the only one that can't be lost is in the Kylum Kylorum or the heaven of heavens when you're dead. And uh, after the resurrection and after the final judgment and all that. So I really do think it boils down to eschatology for Augustine. Uh, I think you can use that phrase, beatus in spe, to keep from falling into utter despair right now. But I do think there are limits to how content (laughs) you can be on this Augustinian framework. But I think he would see that as a feature, not a bug. Right? We don't necessarily have to agree, um, but that's, that's... my wager is that that's where Augustine lands on the question of uh, of happiness and hope. And before we end, maybe the last question is: um, I, I think you bring him into very interesting dialogue with uh, Agamben. Agamben is reading of uh, Paul uh, on yeah. the Kairos. Yeah, um, and you seem to somehow push against Agamben's. Uh, view through Augustine. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yes, yes. Um, So the way I read Agamben in uh, his book on Paul, which is basically just his almost line by line (laughs) exegesis of the epistle to the Romans, um, is that he he sort of sees the Pauline kairos, so this Greek word that can kind of mean time. It can kind of mean now. It can kind of mean season. Uh, I like to think of it as like the, uh, it kind of encapsulates that, that statement of Malcolm, the time is now, right? That's what the Kairos seems to be, uh, at least in Agamben's reading of Paul, right? Sort of a messianic moment, but one that Agamben reads as full of political potential. And so what he's doing there is basically reading Paul through the lens of, of uh, Walter Benjamin, who uh, in his theses on the philosophy of history talks about uh, from the vantage point of Jewish messianism, not Christian messianism, but messianism nonetheless, this idea that any moment can be the gate, the narrow gate through which the mes- uh, messianic energy flows, right? Or through which the, the Messiah appears. And so it's meant to be this kind of revolutionary kairos, right? This moment where like every, you know, everything could change in a, in a moment. We just don't know when that moment could be, but it could happen, you know, two seconds from now, and then everything would be different, right? And it, and it, and in in addition, it, that revolutionary Kairos would have the potential of going back and kind of redeeming the past, right? And 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 making all the senseless deaths of the oppressed and the past matter and all this stuff. And I'm very sensitive to that. I find that kind of rhetoric, you know, quite attractive, and I understand why Agamben is drawn to it. Having said that, I don't think it's very Augustinian. <laughs> and while Augustine is very Pauline, I think the way that Augustine reads Paul, such as through Philippians, like what we read before, is just different, right? The Kairos cashes out in a different way in Augustine than it does um, in Agamben. Uh, and so for Agamben, the idea, again, is that we're going to take this idea of a messianic now, a messianic moment. He's really into like the idea of now time and yet sight. This goes back to uh, Infancy in History, which is a much earlier work by Agamben, where he basically lays all these ideas out. Not He doesn't systematically read them into Paul, but it's all there, right? So you can kind of connect all of that together. Um, so Agamben wants to find in the Jewish and Christian messianic traditions a kind of Marxian or post-Marxian revolutionary potential. And... I don't think you can get there with Augustine because I don't think Augustine is thinking in terms of a revolutionary now, right? Or the time is now. Malcolm is, Agamben is, uh, Benjamin probably was, uh, who knows what Paul was thinking. Uh, but I don't think Augustine is, is there, right? Augustine is closer to Dr. King's position that time is neutral. That doesn't mean you can't have hope, uh, but it does mean that we have to temper our expectations for a kind of utopian uh, revolutionary moment. Um, and so to sum all that up, I would just say I'm very sensitive, I think, and and drawn in many ways. I'm sensitive to and, and drawn to Agamben's rereading of Paul, like that the Paul book I think is is kind of amazing. I, I just 
stared at it for a really long time and tried to figure out what Agamba was saying. And, and I think it's very rich text. Having said that, I, I just don't think it's that compatible with Augustine's account of time and history. Um, and the con of that is that it might make Augustine seem a bit more like a quietist, which is why I, I put Agamben, Malcolm, and Dr. King all together with Augustine in chapter six into this big pot, just mix them all together and tried to figure out, is there a way to have hope, right? Is, yeah, is there a way to have hope and, and to actually have change in the world, in the imminent frame, right? In the world that we actually live in? Or do we just have to kind of retreat uh, from the public sphere and place our hope in uh, in the eschaton. I don't think Augustine is that extreme to say that you know we have to to be quietists, but I can see why some would say that, and therefore I can see the appeal of a of a more Benjaminian or Agamben fueled approach, which is more exciting, frankly. Um, but I'm not sure that makes it more correct. But also more daunting, probably, right? Given all this. Uh dystopian temptation, so to speak, uh, utopian, dystopian. But um, I was going to say, as you said, I put them all together. Well, how's that? In a very, I mean, you do it in a very nice way. I'm sometimes a purist when it comes to studying medieval intellectual history. It's like, you know, you have to study the text carefully and be very... Um, very reluctant to create this conversation, but I think you do it in a very successful and genuine way. You're not just going there for the goodies and run away with the golden apples and then... <laughs> uh, but you actually spend time and take Augustine uh, his face value, so to speak, and then try to, I think, successfully create very good conversations about these issues. Um, Thank you, Sean, for your time. And uh, I look forward to uh, discussing your second book that you mentioned at the beginning. I hope we find time to do that in the future.